your Bible and turn with me to the book of Hosea chapter 4. Hosea chapter 4. If you're looking in the Pew Bible, you ought to find it on page 955. And as you're turning there, I want you to uh, imagine something with me. I want you to imagine for a moment that you're, you're out in public. Let's say you're at the grocery store and a stranger walks up to you someone you don't recognize, someone you've never seen, and they walk up to you and they say, I don't like you. Now, you might think, that's strange. Um, did I cut that person off in the parking lot or something? Did they wave at me and I, I missed it or something like that? Or you might think, is this some kind of prank? Am I being filmed right now? Or there's obviously something wrong with this person, so I'm just going to try to move on as quickly as I can because they say they don't like me, but I don't know them. Now imagine that same scenario. Someone walks up to you. I don't like you, except this time it's not a stranger. It's, it's an acquaintance or it's a friend. Imagine it is your closest friend in the world. I don't like you. Now, that's going to have a slightly different impact than a stranger, right? Because the deeper our relationship with someone, the more painful it would be to hear them say, I don't like you. On the other hand, uh, the closer a person is to us, the more seriously we should take their critique. If a stranger comes up to you and says, I don't like you, you can say, okay, have a good day. But if, if Rebecca came up to me and said, I don't like you, then it would be in my best interest to say, why? And what can I do to change this, right? So if a stranger criticizes us, we can brush that off. At least that's the healthy thing to do. We, we live in a world where, you know, strangers can critique us on the Internet, and we, we think we have to worry about that. So that's not very healthy. But in, in the real world, a stranger can walk up to you and say, I don't like you, and you can brush that aside. But if it's someone who, who you know, then that's something that it would probably be healthy to, to think about. As, as Proverbs 27, 6 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. In the book of Hosea, God refers to the nation of Israel as his bride, and he refers to the people of Israel as his children. And we have to keep that always in the front of our mind as we listen to what God says to them. Because God is not a stranger walking up to Israel and saying, I don't like you, and here's why. God is speaking to people whom he loves. And he is speaking as someone who is infinitely wise and good and who has their best interest at heart. These are his beloved covenant people. And for those of us who, who claim to know the Lord, we ought to heed the warning that God gave to Israel as if he were speaking it to us today. So rather than being defensive or indifferent, we should examine our ways. So let's read together in Hosea chapter 4. We're going to begin in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish. And also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, and even the fish of the sea are taken away. 
Yet let no one contend, and let none accuse, for with you is my contention, O priest. You shall stumble by day, the prophet also shall stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. The more they increase, the more they sin against me, I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity. And it shall be like people, like priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They shall eat but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore but not multiply, because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine and new wine, which take away the understanding. My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. They sacrifice on the tops of the mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth because their shade is good. Therefore your daughters play the whore and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes, and a people without understanding shall come to ruin. Though you play the whore, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. Enter not into Gilgal, nor go up to beth and swear not as the Lord lives. Like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in a broad pasture? Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. When their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring. Their rulers dearly love shame. A wind has wrapped them in its wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. We're going to pause there and ask the Lord to help us here. Let's pray. God, we need your help this morning to um, not only to make sense of what Hosea was saying to the people of his day, but also to understand how this applies to us so many years later. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to, to, to hear um, these as the, as the words, as, as difficult as it may be, uh, to hear these as the words of someone who loves these people and who loves us. And, Lord, that we would sit under your loving accusations and your loving warnings of judgment. And, God, that you would help us to, to see our sin and that we would come to, to hate it, that we might turn from it and turn to you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, last Sunday, um, I pointed out how what God's doing here in the book of Hosea is essentially a lawsuit. He says in chapter 4, verse 1, the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land, and the word controversy is akin to the word lawsuit. And there are basically three indictments that God brings against His people. He says that there is no faithfulness, there is no steadfast love, and there is no knowledge of God in the land. You see those in chapter 4, verse 1. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. And um, today we begin to hear God lay out the supporting evidence for those indictments. So that we heard the indictment. That's, that, those are the charges that He's pressing and today what we begin to hear is, is God laying out the evidence for those indictments. He's making His case. And as we listen to His case against Israel, 
we have to ask whether any of this is true of us. And let me just say that I think when we hear this, our, our initial inclination is to say, this is not true of me. And yet there were so many people that Hosea was speaking to who would have said the exact same thing. This may be true of other people, but this is not true of me. I know the Lord, right? And so what Hosea is saying is, no, you don't. And here are all the reasons why I know that to be. So, so we need to listen humbly. And uh, the Lord gives a, a list of defendants here, and it includes the whole nation. But at the front of the list were the priests. He says in verse 4, With you is my contention, O priest. And in verse 6, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. Now, there is not a direct correlation between Old Testament priests and New Testament pastors. Praise God. But one area where they are similar is that both are given the task of teaching God's people what it means to know Him and to love and follow Him. And the priests had apparently failed in that regard because God says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And the reason for that is because you have rejected knowledge, O priest. In fact, God says something strange in verse 8. He says, they, that is the priests, feed on the sin of my people. Now in Hebrew, the word for sin and the word for sin offering are the exact same word. So you have to pay attention to context and know which one does he mean here. And the answer is probably both. God could be speaking figuratively that, that the priests derive some kind of enjoyment from the sin of the people, or he could mean quite literally that the priests feast on the sin offerings of the people. So let me put this in terms that would kind of make sense to us. Imagine if whenever you sinned, every time you sinned, you had to bring a filet mignon to church. I mean, because the, the things they offered were the best, I mean, the best of the best. That's the, you couldn't just bring some gangly old lamb from somewhere. You had to bring a really good one. So every time you sin, you have to bring a filet mignon to church. And you bring it to, to me or Colby, and we have the task of, of cooking it and offering it to the Lord as a sacrifice. But then here's the thing. We get to eat it. Leviticus 6.26 says, The priest who offers it for sin shall eat it. So... We, we get to eat pretty good, right? And so if the priests were corrupt, then you have to wonder, do they feel some kind of incentive to encourage the people to sin? Because the more y'all sin, the better we eat, right? So we're going, we might not talk about, you know, we, we might not call you to repentance. We say, just do what you want and then bring a filet mignon up here and we'll call it square, right? So there would be an incentive if you had corrupt priests to to not call the people to repentance, but just to say, no, just go ahead and do what you want to do and then bring your sacrifices, bring your offerings to the Lord. What's clear is that the very people who should have been leading Israel to know and to keep the law of the Lord, they were instead leading the people into sin. Notice what God says in chapter 5, verse 1. In chapter 5, verse 1, He says, Hear this, O priests, 
Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king. For the judgment is for you. For you have been a snare at Mizpah and a net spread upon Tabor. Now here's the picture. Rather than being like watchmen who were supposed to be looking and warning the people about the snares of sin, the priests and other leaders, he includes the house of the king there, so religious leaders and political leaders, instead of warning people about the snares of sin, they had become the snares. They were, they were helping to trap people in sin. And so I was thinking about that in relation to, you know, pastoring, and it started, you know, kind of making me think that I remember I, I began to learn uh, very early in ministry that I am not capable of keeping people from sinning. I wish I could, but I can't. I can, I can preach and exhort. I can pray and lead. I can love and I can try to the best of my ability to, to set an example with my own conduct. But I cannot force anyone to practice godliness, right? I, I, can't, I can't come to your house and say, you know, hey, I've been watching you and, and I've, I've had surveillance set up and you need to stop doing this. I, I can't come, you know, on Sunday morning and wake you up and say, all right, time to, time to get up. You know, I, I can't do those things. Uh, I could, but you'd probably call the police on me and I probably wouldn't make it very long. And so I had to learn that early on because, because in my pride, I thought I could. I thought if I just, if, if they just hear it clearly enough, then, then we'll, we'll all be fine. Right? So I had to be liberated from the burden of thinking that I could make people be holy or that I, could, or that I was responsible for, for everyone's holiness or lack thereof. So, so if I saw God doing something incredible in someone's life, it would, it would just puff me up with pride. And if I saw someone really struggling in sin, I would just be in despair. So God commands pastors... Set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. He commands us to devote ourselves to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. These are all quotes from 1 Timothy. He commands us to keep a close watch on ourselves and on the teaching. But He does not hold us responsible for how people respond to our ministry. The Old Testament prophets had the exact same experience. In fact, God told some of the prophets very clearly that they were not going to have a successful ministry if success meant lots of people responding well to them. God told Isaiah, the people aren't going to listen. They're going to harden their hearts. And he told many other prophets the same thing. So what that meant was success could not be defined by how well people responded. Success had to be defined by faithfulness to the God-given task. And these priests in Hosea's day had failed at that task of faithfulness. There were probably lots of people who thought, I love this priest because he never makes me feel bad. He always just makes me feel great. And he says, just do what you want. And then as long as you bring the sacrifice, it's all good. The problem is they might have pleased a lot of people, but they weren't pleasing God. Now, that does not free the people from responsibility. It's not like we can say, well... The priests were guilty, and that, that's where the problem is here, and everybody else was innocent. No, God makes it very, very clear that these people chose to ignore the words of the Lord through His faithful prophets. They chose to ignore what He had said, but the leaders were doubly guilty. 
because not only did they sin, but they also failed to teach the true ways of God and to call people to repentance. So rather than being this kind of break to help slow down the decline into sin, the priests were hitting the gas pedal and accelerating the decline into sin. That does not make the people irresponsible for their sin. It just means that the priests were doubly responsible. Now God lays out, in, especially in chapter 4, which we just read, He lays out plenty of evidence against the defendants, the people and the priests. The priests had failed to, to teach the people the ways of God, and the people were committing gross acts of, of idolatry and adultery. And uh, we, could, we could, you know, dive deep and, and look at all of that, and, and we may do that another day. But what I want us to do this morning is, is to drill beneath the external acts of sin and, and look at the underlying danger of the sin. Because what we could do is we could say, well, God says these people were committing idolatry, right? He says, he kind of says sarcastically they're, they're getting oracles from their walking staff. They inquire of a piece of wood and that sort of thing. We well, could say, I, I don't do that. It's no, no problem for me. Uh, he, he describes acts of adultery where people were, were committing acts of, of cult prostitution. They were thinking we have to do these, these sinful acts in order for the gods to respond and that sort of thing. We could say, well, I don't, I don't do any of that. Never been tempted to do that. But we need to kind of go beneath the, the surface and look at the underlying danger of the sin because even if we've never sinned in precisely this same way, our sin is just as dangerous as theirs. So, so the question is, what makes sin so dangerous? And God tells us here in this passage, and I want us to see that together. So I want to summarize it by saying that the danger of sin is pride and self-delusion. This is the danger of sin. It's pride and self-delusion, where we convince ourselves that what God calls sin is not in fact all that bad or we at least convince ourselves that I've never done anything that God calls that bad. I want you to notice what God says in chapter 5, verses 4 through 6. These are some verses that when you read through them, they ought to absolutely stop us in our tracks. Verse 4, chapter 5, verse 4. God says, "...their deeds do not permit them to return to their God." For the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. So there again you hear that accusation, they don't know me. And the reason for that is because they have been wrapped up in the spirit of whoredom. And, and again, that, that idea of, of adultery is something that God uses in Hosea, not just to describe the literal act of adultery, but to describe any kind of sin. And so the idea is that, that these people have so given themselves over to this spirit of sin that their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. It's as if they have entrapped themselves in a snare of their own making. The, the way I often think of this is it's like they have dug ruts so deep in their life that they've been going down the same sinful path over and over and over again for years and years and years without ever turning, that before long they find it hard to, to drive on any other path than that because the ruts have become so deep. Or to put it another way, 
when we persist in unrepentant sin, it's like our sin sets off fewer alarms. I, some of you are dog people and some of you are cat people. We're cat people at our house. If, you, if you've ever been around a cat, you probably have done this. If not, go do it this afternoon you'll have a good laugh. Wait till you've got a cat that's sitting there and they're kind of, you know, just chilling. Maybe they're asleep. And go up to it and just stick your finger just kind of on the tip of their fur. What does their fur start doing? It starts to twitch. It's like, get off of me, get off of me. Keep doing it. It'll twitch a little bit. Keep doing it. It'll twitch a little bit. Keep doing it. And then eventually it stops because the cat's like, I guess this person's just going to keep poking me, so I'm going to let it quit bothering me. Well, that's kind of what happens to us sometimes when we persist in unrepentant sin. It, at first, it kind of makes us our skin crawl. We say, this doesn't feel right. But eventually, our conscience becomes less responsive and we stop twitching as much. We, we set off fewer alarms. Our conscience kind of becomes like this security guard who fell asleep in the surveillance room. And he's got all the cameras right there in front of him, but he's asleep and he doesn't see the burglars breaking in and wiping the place out. So the more we persist in unrepentant sin, the more difficult it becomes for us to return to the Lord. Why is that? Verse 5 gives a clue. He says, The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. Now, let me kind of hit the pause button here for a second in case you get confused about what are all these different names, Israel and Ephraim and Judah. Hosea uses the names Israel and Ephraim interchangeably. Um, this was a time when the kingdom had been split in two. You had in the north there were ten tribes. Ephraim was the biggest tribe. And so that, that kingdom was sometimes called Israel or Ephraim. And in the south you had two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, Judah being the largest, so that kingdom was called Judah. Hosea's primary ministry is to the northern kingdom of Israel, or as he often calls it, Ephraim. Um, but the point is, anytime you see Ephraim, just know that's another way of referring to Israel. Okay, so the important thing I want you to see there is that the people's pride is what's keeping them from returning to God. Uh, I have a friend named John Morgan, and I once heard him say, Humility is painful, but pride is deadly. Humility is painful, but pride is deadly. It is, it is painful to humble yourself, but it is deadly not to humble yourself. And what makes Israel's pride so deadly is that it's their pride that is keeping them from truly seeking the Lord. And this is where the self-delusion starts to creep in. Notice what God says in verse 6. He says, With their flocks and herds they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find Him. He has withdrawn from them. Israel is trying to have it both ways. They want to chase after other gods. They want to live however they please. But then they still want to bring their flocks and herds. They still want to, to come and offer sacrifices to the Lord as if everything is fine. It would be like an adulterous spouse who goes out and does God knows what with God knows who all day long over and over and over again and then wants to come home and enjoy the comforts of family and home. And God effectively tells Israel, I'm not playing that game. I'm not going to allow you to keep doing this. If you want your other lovers, you can have them, but you can't expect to have me along with them. 
And this is something that the American church desperately needs to hear and heed as well because there are too many people who want to play these games with God. These are old games. These are games that Israel was playing where, where people say, I want to live according to my own desires. I want, I want to do exactly what I want to do and I don't want anybody to tell me otherwise. So it's individual freedom over obedience to the Lord. But then they want to, to sanctify all of that. They want to baptize all of that with Christian-sounding phrases, vague references to God and Jesus. They may, even, they may even engage in external religious activity. But they're like the fig tree that Jesus cursed because He said, if you stand off at a distance, it looks like it's in bloom. But the closer you get, the more you realize it's all leaves and no fruit. There's no evidence of God-given spiritual life. So, God, in His goodness, intends to awaken His people out of this self-delusion. Their conscience has fallen asleep, and He's going to wake them up. And the way He does that is painful, but loving. And that, that leads us to the goodness of judgment. The danger of sin was pride and self-delusion and the goodness of God's judgment is that He afflicts and He withdraws. God afflicts His people and He withdraws from them. God says in chapter 5, verse 14, I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue now, when you, when you see what happens in, in history, what happens is God allows the Assyrians to, to come and to destroy Samaria and to carry His people off into slavery. But behind the work of the Assyrians is the Lord. He's the one who says, I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue so again, the book of Hosea forces us to expand our concept of what it means for God to love. It's not that God flies off the handle in wrath and just absolutely loses it on His people and then comes to His senses and says, Oh, I'm so sorry. Let me show you mercy again. No, everything He does is love. Even when He tears His people like a lion, He does so out of the abundance of His love and goodness, His wisdom and holiness. So it's not that He afflicts His people, then shows them mercy. His afflicting is merciful because it's waking them up. It's jolting them out of that self-delusion of thinking that we can do exactly what we want to do and then we can just keep coming back to the Lord and He's going to be fine with that. So he afflicts them, and then the other thing he says he's going to do is he's going to withdraw from his people. We, we just read in chapter 5, verse 6, where he says, With their flocks and their herds they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find Him. He has withdrawn from them. And then after saying in verse 14 that he's going to tear them like a lion, he adds in verse 15, chapter 5, verse 15, he says, I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly Seek me. Again, I want you to notice the purpose behind this withdrawal. The reason God withdraws from His people is not 
because of some cold indifference. It's not that he just throws his hands up and says, I give up. Nor is it out of simmering hatred. Nor does he say, I'm just going to go away and then, you know, I'm mad at them and then I'm just going to go and slam the door and all that kind of stuff. No, he withdraws out of love. He says, I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. God knows that maybe this is what Israel needs is that when they bring those flocks and herds to come to him again, that he says, I'm not going to be there. I'm not going to listen. I'm going to withdraw from them. And so his afflicting and his withdrawing are both an outpouring of his goodness, which is meant to humble the pride of his people and to jolt them out of their own self-delusion. And that brings us at last to the remedy for restoration. Acknowledgement and repentance. This is the God-ordained solution for there to be restoration. There has to be acknowledgement and there has to be repentance. I said a moment ago that, that Israel wanted to play this game where they, they live however they please, they show up with their sacrifices and try to make everything all better. And what God says is, we're not playing that game. If that's what you want to do, I will withdraw from you. I will, you will not find me. I will not listen to you. And this is loving because God knows that the way His people were seeking Him was false and empty. He won't allow them to continue living in the fantasy of thinking that they can have it both ways. Another way of putting it is that Israel was essentially trying to use God. They were trying to manipulate and to control Him. And this is something we see Israel do many, many times in the Old Testament. They think as long as we have the ark of God with us, then He's, he's guaranteed to give us victory. As long as we go and make these offerings as He prescribed, then he's, He is obligated to, to respond in this certain way. And what they're not doing is they're not humbling themselves before the Lord. They're not acting as people who love Him, who want to live in a relationship with Him. They're trying to manipulate and control Him. They're trying to do just enough to make it so that God has to do what they want Him to do. And God lovingly is showing them that He cannot be manipulated. He will not allow them to continue thinking that they can control Him. He has to shake them out of that delusion. Before they can genuinely seek His face, they have to acknowledge their guilt. Notice what happens at the beginning of chapter 6. This is the people's response to what God has done. Chapter 6, verse 1, they say, Come, let us return to the Lord. For He has torn us that He may heal us. He has struck us down and He will bind us up. Now here's what I want you to notice. It is only after they have acknowledged their guilt. He says at the end of chapter 5, I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. And chapter 6 begins, Come, let us return to the Lord. For He has torn us that He may heal us. He has struck us down and He will bind us up. It is only after they have acknowledged their guilt 
that they can genuinely return to the Lord. And the same is true for us. And chapter 6, verse 3 should be the desire of every one of us. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. So God had charged His people with failing to know Him. And the evidence for that lack of knowledge is the fact that they were living in sin and pridefully refusing to return to Him. So what that says to us is the way to know whether we know the Lord is not if we profess to know Him, but if we live as if we know Him, if we obey Him and desire to please Him. The way to know the Lord in truth is in part by knowing and confessing our sin, by turning from it, and by desiring to live a life that pleases Him. Martin Luther, when he nailed the 95 theses to the door at Wittenberg, the very first thesis, he wrote, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Martin Luther was living in a time where many, many people thought exactly the same way the people of Israel did in Hosea's day. We'll do exactly what we want to do, and then as long as we go to Mass, as long as we pray to Mary, as long as we purchase indulgences from the priest, then everything will be fine. And that's what it means to do penance. And Martin Luther comes along and actually reads the Bible and says, no, that's not at all what he's talking about. When he says repent, he doesn't mean to go and purchase an indulgence from the priest. He doesn't mean to go to Mass and, and, and take communion. He means to turn, to turn from your sin and to trust in Him as your Lord and Master. And we now live in exactly the same kind of culture. We don't have... We don't have lambs that we have to take to Bethel or Gilgal or Jerusalem. We don't have indulgences to purchase, but we have all these right things to say and all these external things to do, and yet we refuse in our heart of hearts to acknowledge our guilt before the Lord. We refuse to return to Him. We refuse to, in the words of Hosea, to press on to know Him, to, to desire to please Him and to be in a relationship with Him. Now, we cannot know God without knowing about Him, right? So we, we have, to, we have to, to want to know about Him, but the way to gauge whether we know Him in truth is not by asking how much religious activity we're engaged in or how often we speak about Him or how passionately we profess to know Him. The question is, do I desire to obey Him? Do, do I live like someone who wants to please Him? I'm not asking, are you perfect? I'm asking, is there evidence in your life that, that you want to obey the Lord and to please Him? And my prayer is that perhaps this very sermon would be something that jolts somebody out of a rut that awakens somebody out of a, a slumbering conscience and to, to awaken us to the fact that there are things 
we're doing in our lives and things we're not doing in our lives that give evidence to the fact that we're not really trying to, desire, to, to obey God. We don't really desire to please Him. We just want to use Him. We want to manipulate Him. We want to control Him. We want Him to bless us. But we don't have any desire to, to please Him and to honor Him. So the question I want to leave you with this morning is, is this. Are you playing games with God? Too many people are playing games with God. Are you, are you trying to do just enough of the right things because you want to manipulate Him? Or are you earnestly seeking Him? Are you pressing on to know Him? We're going to sing a hymn of invitation in just a moment. This is our opportunity to respond to God's Word. Um, and uh, just as I'm sure the people of Hosea's day found it, this is not a, uh, a pleasant word. It is a word of, of criticism and a word of affliction. And yet, behind it is the loving heart of our Heavenly Father who disciplines the one whom He loves. And so I pray that every single one of us would humble ourselves before Him that we would examine our hearts, examine our lives, and that we would press on to know Him. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for how You speak to us in Your Word so truthfully. Lord, that You are, are not willing to leave us under uh, our own self-delusion, that You're not content to leave us to our own pride, but Lord, that You want to humble us and awaken us to the, to the ways in which we have totally ignored what You have told us, that you, we have totally ignored what you have said it means to live in a relationship with you. And so, Lord, I pray that, that every single one of us would be convicted, including myself, Lord, I pray that you would show us uh, ways that we have fallen short, and Lord, that you would help us by your Spirit to, to have a genuine desire to turn from those things, to put off sin and to put on righteousness, and to walk in obedience and in faith to you. And Lord, that, uh, that we would experience the, the delight and the joy of openly confessing our sins to you and knowing that you have promised in your word that you are faithful and you are just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So Lord, help us. I pray that none of us would try foolishly to conceal our sin from your eyes because you see but Lord, that we would agree with you, that we would acknowledge it, that we would confess it to you, and that by your grace we would turn from it and find forgiveness and restoration, and that we would indeed press on to know you. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.